Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Tēnā koutou katoa. I'm Bernard Hickey, co-host of The Hoon with fellow co-host Peter Bale in Hoon Bay. How's it going, Peter? It's going very well, Bernard. I guess because it's um, Toreo week, we should say that we're going to do some uh, Korero Kai Pakahi this week, right? Ah, but without yeah. Giles Beckford, the Korero mm. Kai Pakahi is going to be with you and me talking about money subjects. It is, it is Toreo week, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah, and I think you do a brilliant job of it. And I was really struck by the person. It was a pretty awful story, one of those awful, slightly contrived Radio New Zealand stories sometimes about this kind of subject, about the Martinborough Bakery, which was giving away a rum and chocolate uh, bonbon thing or a, you know, some sort of sweet to people who tried to uh-huh. order their uh, pastries in, in Toreo, which I thought was a brilliant idea. What a great idea. I mean, there idea. won't be any of that. When, when, David, when David Seymour's in charge, there won't be any of that nonsense. But, it, you know, I thought it was a lovely thing. He went over the edge a bit this week. There's been a couple of strange and, and dodgy things said. For example, he almost reveled in the, in the idea that a national act would sack 15,000 people before, civil servants, yeah. Before Christmas. They'll be fairly uncivil servants by the time that comes about. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you want us to give you a briefing, Minister? <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, did I just say that out loud? I did. Exactly. Yeah, sorry. Um, they, they would love to say it out loud, but probably couldn't. Now, shall we, shall we do a little bit of a run-through about what we're going to do today? Because we've got, we've got Sir Robert Patman, um, or Professor mm. Robert Patman, soon to be Sir Robert Patman, I'm absolutely sure mm. that... Um, He'll he'll get there, but we're going to talk a little bit about Ukraine, Elon Musk, uh, and one of our lovely um, subscribers, um, David Coombs from Hoon Bay, who's also in Hoon Bay, I believe, wrote to me saying, "Could we have a bit of an update on um, you know he thinks we do things on demand, a bit of an update on the Ukraine war?" So I, I've given oh, I've yeah. had a bit of an advanced chat with Robert because we sometimes turn him into a sort of armchair general when, of course, he's got a gigantic scope of um, you mm. know brain on legs from Otago. But we're going to do a lot on New Zealand politics too, Bernard, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's, a, there's been a lot happen in the last three to four weeks that we haven't really touched on and um, plenty of action this week, um, things flying all over the place. And also plenty of action too in the whole geopolitics around the world oh, yes. to do with it. Yes. And we've got an election campaign uh, here this week, plenty of drama about uh, fiscal uh, holes and um Debates around whether foreign buyers will buy as many houses as national thinks they will. I managed well, to. And if they do, get... if they do, there's your housing market gone completely. Oh up the yes, wazoo, and and we'll be even richer than we already are now because we were of our houses. Not to get you started on your favourite subject. Yeah, well, anyone who's gonna, about to be buying or owning a house for one point six million dollars will now know it's suddenly worth two million. Exactly, that's what I'm certainly hoping. And Bernard, I was really struck talking to our lovely friend Patrick Smelly from Business Desk this week that people were sneering at him, apparently, possibly even members of his own staff, for having described Christopher Luxon as uh, being a Napoleonic plutocrat. <laughs> uh, which I rather like because some somebody you know there's a there's an English website that I really like a lot called thecritic.co.uk from hmm. the Critic magazine and they do a weekly a very very good weekly parliamentary sketch with an incredibly obviously faked picture and when I saw the picture that was illustrating Patrick's piece where he described Luxon as being Napoleonic in a mocking fashion Christopher Luxon was wearing a kind of um, some weird cross between Napoleon and Captain Cook's outfit with a tricorn hat and carrying a sword with which he pe- appeared to be doffing somebody on the head. And I just thought, that's got to be a fake picture. That's got to be just cut and pasted because it was too ridiculous for words. No, and I'm no afraid, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, so he hasn't, he, he, you know, lesson number one, do not put on silly hats or silly uniforms. You know, do not, you know, Boris Johnson was the great silly hat man, of course, as well. Silly hat and silly, you know, he would, if there was a, um, a fluorescent vest that could be found, he would have it. 
Yes, and he would come down a flying fox on it and then get stuck halfway and get stuck up, halfway. looking like yeah. the little boy whose britches have been pulled up. A rather fat little yeah. boy, yes. A rather fat yeah. little Tom Brown school, boy, school days. Yeah, yeah. No, the only thing missing from Christopher Luxon's tricorn hat sword outfit uh, this week was the satin sash across the, across the front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am yeah. very keen to watch the um, the new um, Joaquin Phoenix film about uh, Napoleon, which where the, mm. the pictures of Joaquin Phoenix looking. I mean, you know, almost don't even need to see the film. It's as though Joaquin Phoenix has just kind of embodied, oh, right. embodied yeah. the whole of whole of Napoleon. I think it's um, one of the Ridley brothers. Who's who's made it? I mean, it looks absolutely oh. sensational. Although I have been told it's a bit, uh, I have seen ideas that it's a bit bit woke. In which case, I should love it. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, also a fantastic picture during the rounds of Elon Musk dressed as Napoleon, which we'll get to when we oh. we're going to do a little Musk segue. We hope, Catherine, when we get to um, Professor Patman. Or Sir Excellent. Robert, as I have decided to start calling him. Yes. No, our segue <laughs> form is is hot at the moment. Actually, speaking of knighthoods, speaking of knighthoods, Bernard, I nearly fell out of my chair this week, and I too when I saw that a very old friend, well, an old friend of mine, Will Lewis, the oh, right. uh, yeah. former managing editor of the uh, news editor of the Financial Times, and eventually chief executive of Dow Jones, and who also mopped up uh, Rupert's problem with the News of the World uh, hacking people's phones. Lo and behold, because he was advising Boris, is now Sir. Will of Lewis course. in the UK. Mm. I'm fractioning older than him, so I'm kind of irritated. Now, segue, back to your segue. So we're hot with the segue action, and the planet is hot Jesus, at the moment. Uh, <laughs> Catherine, it's lovely to see you again, and you've done lots of great work this week keeping on top of uh, the climate action. And I uh, wanted to start off uh, with the election campaign and the non-climate policy from the, the major parties uh, that have come out this week. Um, and in particular, Labour came out with a trial, uh, they call it a deep uh, housing refit program, yeah, and right. also, uh, exactly, and, and also uh, has not moved to um, stop new gas connections. Could you talk us through what's problematic about all that? Yeah, I found it quite frustrating. I mean, um, we have some lousy housing stock in New Zealand that's cold and damp and energy inefficient. And so there's all sorts of good reasons to have policy that improves that. But this particular policy that came out before the weekend, uh, they were talking about deep retrofits. So first of all, they were talking about deep retrofits of houses where you could get double glazing and you know extra insulation and all sorts of things. And they would cover 30% of the cost up to $18,000. So that's mm -hmm. an almost $60,000 refit. Who's getting these things? Mm. You know? Well, that's, but that's, that is exactly what it would cost to do some, at least that, to do some drafty old villa. And what's also going to happen is, and it's because I could see this happening in the UK where they're trying to get everybody to move to heat pumps, is there's going to be some fantastic heat pump cowboys. In fact, yeah. that should be Bernard my new album, The Heat, the heat Pump Cowboys. <laughs> Well, it was definitely, you know, another policy for the so-called squashed middle and nothing um, – The sorry, what was it? Squeezed middle and nothing for the squashed bottom. Exactly. Yeah, the squashed bottom <laughs> just so, gets to pay so, for it. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, and then, you know, and then there was a bit about the gas refits, and that's where they will pay you to electrify your gas connection. But I've sat and watched in the last few years, something like three of my neighbours have – retrofitted their electric connections for their hot water and gas stoves to gas. So they've got big gas mm. bottles on the side of the house. So that's just happened. I'll sit there watching it going, I thought we were in a transition. No, no, no. But that's an interesting idea because they, what they're doing is they're converting it to propane, I assume, I assume which is or possibly not LPG. Because, of course, National and ACT are going to re uh, repeal the ban on um, offshore energy exploration. So we're going to have a five or ten or probably no New Zealand thirty year thirty year transition with lots of gas, which makes some sense. But but this is but. kind of the problem is that where everybody is allowed to do these retrofits to put in gas instead of electricity, and then the taxpayer gets to pay for them mm -hmm. to put it back again a few years later. That's it's right. It's like running water into the bathtub with the plug out. 
What you mean? You mean like Watercare with what thirty-five? Or oh, sorry, it's like Wellington actually, isn't it? Actually, yes. so, some some days you get shit coming out of the tap, and then the, days, the next days you get nothing coming out of the tap, and you wish you had still had the shit coming out of the yeah, tap. Yeah, well, yeah. The infrastructure is a whole other subject of yes of things not being invested in. <laughs> So, Catherine, where does this go? I mean, is, is this another one where they're just never going to have to implement it, though? So they're Probably, just flicking things out. I mean, to me, it was just looked like another lolly scramble for this so-called squeezed middle um, to try and get a few extra votes. But actually, it's just another thing that the squash bottom gets to pay for and gets to benefit from. Exactly. Yeah. And it is classic median voter politics in an MMP age. And National probably looked at that policy and thought, oh, damn, we, we should have done something just like that. And, and a bit, it's a bit like National's um, 10,000 charger install subsidies, which are fantastic for those people who already have electric cars, including Christopher Luxon's good good partner. Um, do, we, do we call her his better half? I'll bet I'll bet he calls her his better, which is an expression that if, if I hear anybody say that, it makes me makes me more or less ill. Does it? What does he call her, Mrs. Luxon, or my better half? My, possibly, Mummy? yeah. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> what so, did you just say? No, <laughs> Catherine, our lawyers are wrong. What did you just say? That's very good. I think God I heard. What, did you say mummy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, mother, so, isn't that the way it goes, mother? <laughs> yeah, yeah, mother. Yeah, mother. Um, so. Uh, that's one of those policies that um, is really designed for the middle class. So that's that's on the election campaign front. Um, we've yet to see National's admissions policy for the farming sector, although it's uh, announced last night that it would double the number of RSC uh, workers coming in and would also allow um, farms to set up dams without resource consents, which would uh, uh, fuel more of the increase in cows and sheep in the country. That's interesting, because somebody I know has a dam that's been built without resource consent already, ah. and is absolutely having a coronary about because it's quite near the road, yeah. and uh, within range of the cap. And the council I know in that area does use drones to zip around. Ah, mm. Yeah, no, I that's a great just, idea. Yeah, yeah, no. So this was something that has been talked about, and uh, National have said we'll get rid of the red tape, and we'll allow these dams to be to be built. Um, but Catherine, this this week there's also been plenty of news on the actual uh, climate uh, front in terms of science and also tracking the performance of all the countries who've signed up to the Paris Agreement in actually achieving uh, their uh, required reductions in emissions and and where we are on the on the uh, quest to try to avoid cooking the planet. So, do you want to tell us about the the stock take? Right. So the stock take. Um the UN stock take on how we're going to how the world is going against the 2030 targets, which sounds like not particularly well. They're a bit light on on the actual how far behind are we, but it sounds like we're not exactly on track. So that's a bit worrying. We certainly know that we're not on track in New Zealand. the The question is how many other countries are in the same boat, and will we be able to hide our not on track in amongst all the mm. other not mm. on tracks? Um, to the detriment of everybody, obviously. Yeah, one of the things I tried to do this week was nail down Nicola Willis on whether National were actually going to commit to the 2030 targets, which are to reduce emissions, gross emissions, by 50%, particularly from transport and housing. And unfortunately, she, she wouldn't. There was a lot of wriggling that went on. They're happy with the 2050. Ste- steady on, steady on. Yeah, no, so there was there was no uh, commitment to the 2050 target from National. 2030, um, there was lots of talk about we'll try to achieve it and that sort of thing. And but what are they committed to, Bernard? Because you know we're committed to something, aren't we? Well, so that's interesting as well because we've got the Zero Zero Carbon Act, which set, says New Zealand is committed to you know net zero by 2050. But under the Paris Agreement, that's not what we're actually committed to. Under the Paris Agreement, we're only committed to 50% cuts by 2050. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm not even sure which one of those there. there uh, well, you know. in theory, but, but National has previously agreed to abide by the Paris Agreement and, in fact, was certainly involved in the lead-up to the um, Paris Agreement. And there's been no suggestion until now from National that they would bail out of it. Now, ACT have been much more 
robust about not only saying, you know, we should repeal the Zero Carbon Act, but this business of, you know, paying for credits overseas and things is crazy. And some of the the language coming out of some of the ACT candidates is very, you know, uh, um, denier adjacent, let's say. And even comments uh, this week from National's energy uh, spokesperson retweeting and essentially saying we need fossil fuels and that sort of thing is um, there's a risk here that that National uh, step on a landmine here and find themselves being accused of being climate denying uh, head in the sand types. Um, uh, Catherine, the other thing that's come out this week I think is worth mentioning uh, for our audience is some comments out of uh, the uh, well a new paper that talks about planetary boundaries. Can you um, tell us about that? Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar with the planetary boundaries model, you've probably heard about planetary boundaries, but if you want to go and look at the actual model, and there's a great graphic that goes with it, you can find it at stockholmresilience.org. And they've basically outlined nine planetary boundaries and a safe operating space for humanity. And these are split into nine different domains. And the latest iteration of that research, so originally we didn't have measurements for all of those domains. We knew they were important, but we didn't even have the ability to measure them um, to see how we were going within those domains. But now we do. And at the moment, what we have is that six of those nine planetary boundaries, we are already operating well beyond the safe operating space for humans. Mm. Um, And three that aren't, one of the three is ocean acidification. And what's a bit scary about this model is how close we are to crossing that boundary as well and and Mm. some of the implications of ocean acidification are, you know, they're pretty pretty scary actually. They're quite grim. So what, what, what would happen with crossing that acidification boundary? I mean, I think the thing with all of these planetary boundaries that you have to bear in mind is they're they're all connected to each other as well. Mm -hmm. So once you cross the first six, the last couple get a bit easier to cross. Um, Mm. I mean, A, you've got so much of of the global population being fed from fishing stocks, so you you lose that. That's That's a food issue. There's all the ocean currents that you start to lose, so the meridional overturning thing. So that that's the AMOC, and there's also one associated with the Antarctic, which could change the weather all over the world. Could change mm. weather but that's and climate not, that's systems. That's not to do with acidification, though, is it? Or does it? Does acidification well, it's feed to into do that? With, yeah, I mean, they're all. It all sort of connects up, yes, because ocean acidification comes comes about from the ocean stratifying into different levels and it's those current overturns that actually Mm -hmm. mix the water up a bit to prevent Um. that from happening so the two kind of go hand in hand yeah so you know one of the first things you do is you start to lose those currents and it has effects on things like El Nino and La Nina and you know all of these things are sort of all connected up It, it would really could lead to some abrupt weather changes yeah I was going to ask you Catherine about El Nino because I I read something this week it's it's anticipated to be one of the warmer ones of, it, of the series, particularly for places like New Zealand, we've already got warming seas, which has led to, would appear to um, some very um, big changes in our weather, particularly around around you know what we expected wet, more wet periods, more cyclone cyclonic activity. Do you, what what's the outlook that you've been seeing about El Nino for us? I mean, the latest I heard, it wasn't going to be probably as big as, say, the 1998-2016 ones, but it's it's still hard to tell how, how. And the problem is that because it's sitting on top of a warming climate, every time you have another one of these cycles, it's worse than the last one just simply because it's sitting on top of a warmer climate when it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and the, the, the effects for New Zealand are quite different to the rest of the world when it comes to... La Nina. So where La Nina tends to imply hotter, wetter weather, we often get, well, we get a mix of things, but we get a lot of drier, cooler weather. Cast-offs from Australia, in other words. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a mix of things. And it depends on where you are in New Zealand. It's to what you can actually expect. Um, And Catherine, we've seen this incident in um, Libya this week. I've been reading a lot about it. I'm sure you have. I, I noticed there's, there's a phrase for um, Storm Daniel, which you know the, Libya has copped the kind of loop that Storm Daniel has done through the through the Mediterranean, which is now apparently or known to um, forecasters as a medicane, 
which is a Mediterranean mm. hurricane. And mm. you know, it did dump a tremendous amount of water. But then we I mean, can that what do we know yet what the level of attribution in that disaster is to to climate change? I mean, I don't know if they've actually done the attribution work yet, but you, again, you know that any kind of storm action that you get sits on top of a warmer climate, so it tends to amplify everything. But that that's a really good, it's a really good example of negative feedbacks happening, right? Because you've got, you know, poor infrastructure there because mm. of civil unrest and you know and all of those sort of things, and then you get a storm which comes along and and. Bur- Burst those dams and and has such tragic consequences, but you can also imagine that recovery from that is going to is going to be so difficult that you know the infrastructure is going to continue to be even weaker and even more at risk from the next you know so you get these negative feedback loops that just make the situation more and more dire for the people that yeah yeah I just noticed a time has has done has interviewed some people and says that it, you know it is highly likely that that storm daniel was aggravated by climate change but that they won't you know understandably attribute it to it but as you say it's also it's also a very good reminder that it's often the most difficult complex um dare i say shittiest places that are worst affected by this i mean the 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 idea of something going off in libya where you know it it has no unified government it's implausibly corrupt and um, you know, is is an incredibly sort of inevitable and sad outcome. The warning sign I'd say for that is that bad infrastructure and underinvestment in infrastructure is kind of a condition in a lot of countries, including New Zealand mm. at the moment. Mm. You know, and so you kind of think down the line, this is this is something we want to be thinking about. Is is that if we have such poor infrastructure that we haven't invested in, and then we get hit by more and more stronger climate effects, which you know, in themselves take so much money to recover from that you start to get into this kind of position where it gets harder and harder to do the infrastructure work that you need to do ahead of the next disaster, you know. Gosh, what a brilliant chart you've just put up there, Bernard. Yes, um, I just wanted to put this up. Unfortunately, the people on YouTube can't see it. I'll include uh, include it in the version of the Hoon that goes out tomorrow morning. But what we've got there is a chart which shows the various forcing factors um, behind global temperature change in the last 10 years, which essentially strips out the effects of a man-made global warming, uh, El Nino and La Nina, the Tonga eruption, and also the effects of marine fuel pollution. And so you can start mm. to see that it is about global warming and it is about fossil fuel burning and mm. the um, effects of methane and other climate emissions from farming. Bernard, what's the source for those for that? I mean, I, I, you've, you've said the kaka, but I don't believe the, the kaka is the original sourcer. I'd like to see the attribution, please. I'm outraged at that implication. I also want to make sure that your X and Y axis is correct. Is there some total bollocks? But I mean, we're doing some great research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this, this is actually from a thing called uh, Berkeley Earth, which is an independent uh, yep. climate data organization, which um, provides- From the charts, evil social. At Berkeley University, Berkeley, yeah. Uh, so yeah. there's another one here from from Berkeley, which shows you the August, um, where we are in August, and the temperature for the the world over that period from 1850, and you can see how far above the normal it is. This so well, far, I mean, this the, year. Po- the poor people on YouTube can't, in fact, see that, Bernard. So you better uh, yeah. describe it. You know, it's 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 a it's a bell curve, but with this, there's a, there's a, there's a, a new ringing on the bell. Yes, and what you can see there is the rise in temperature and the um, the final point estimated now for 2023, which is for a clear rise from over 1.5 degrees above uh, industrial. Yeah. Speaking of climate change, there's Robert. <laughs> I joked a little bit before about um, propane and um, heat pumps. I had never encountered a heat pump really until I came back to New Zealand a couple of years ago, and I have one. I, I take a great deal of pride in living, you know, putting on an extra sweater and everything, and then going online as you do. I know because you you have the vendor who has the hour of power, so I know everything in your house is washed. You know, Lynn, Mrs. Mrs. Hickey zooms around with the Dyson at you know nine times you know mighty speed and the hour of power. Mrs. And I do similar Hickey things. Will will come and. Uh- a defenestration. Yes, yes, yes. Defenestration would be a pleasure from what. But, <laughs> no. um, but I, do, I have noticed so because the UK is in this tremendous, as is Europe, this tremendous dilemma with heat pumps that there are just far too many of them 
you know, the scale of replacing everybody's boilers mm. and everything is gigantic. They don't generate generate enough heat. But there's a moderately optimistic piece in the Economist, I think, this week, possibly last week's issue actually, about using tiny amounts, like a, a 500 grams of propane inside them, rather than hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. Yeah, and because they're being ruled out as well, and so there is some optimism, but. You know, there's a tremendous way to go before you are going to be able to have realistic replacement of, you know, the entire. You, I mean, you remember what it was mm. like living in the UK with boilers and Christ knows what. You know, it's going to be very difficult. Oh, I liked the radiators. I thought they're good. Yes, of course you did. I bet you. I, I bet if we went to you wherever you were, you'd, your socks would be on there and your undies. Would be but like it was Vivian so Birders. warm, and also yeah. you didn't have all this rushing air. And yeah, yeah, the exactly. whole house was warm. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much for coming in and, and talking about the climate and other things. Um, and uh, Robert, it's wonderful to see you. Uh, we thank wanted you. to spend a bit of time, as Peter mentioned at the beginning of the show, on Ukraine. So I'm going to hand it over to the the, the, to the armchair generals. Yeah, yeah. So Robert, I, I thought it was you know we I said to you in a note today we sometimes mm. I mean like this lovely chat David Coombs who um, you know I, I hang out with more or less on on Joe Voice Road. Um, it said, could we could we address the current state of the battlefront? And I've prepared mm. for this by reading the IWS. I just found that thing I shared with you from the very Royal good United source. Services Institute. Very good source. Mm. And you know, there's a kind of a kind of a, a complicated picture about the front. And then I see also Mike Mully, the um, the US um, mm. Joint Chiefs of Staff, is saying that Ukrainians have probably only got thirty to forty days. To really push through because of weather. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things we've discussed before that applies in this context, uh, Peter, is because an operation like this has never been attempted before. Um, and our good friend at St Andrews keeps pointing this out. There's a lot of false analysis about expectations. That is to say, because it's never been done before, mm. that is a counteroffensive launched against three layers of fortification established over six months without air cover, because it, uh, that's, the, that's the challenge they face, Yeah. then some benchmarks for success were that they should sort of break through within about two to three months, I think. Whereas they are, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're making some pretty, they've demonstrated, particularly in the last week, they're making some sophisticated, deep, well-orchestrated, deep strikes, hundreds of kilometers behind the front line, we saw in Sevastopol devastating strikes against the Minsk, a large landing craft, yep. and also um, a submarine. Um, Called the Rostov-on-Don? Yeah. They've been very severely damaged, it would appear. Very yeah. severely damaged, and it couldn't come at a worse time because it's got big implications for the Black Sea f fleet. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you had this devastating strike in a part of Crimea where there was two, as I understand it, uh, air defense systems Mm -hmm. When that they were, they seem to have been uh, largely destroyed, and they were valued about one point two billion U.S. dollars. So, and that affects Russia's ability with the knocking out of those sophisticated air defense systems. Mm. You know, their 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 grip on Crimea is 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 eroding, and so we're seeing this cumulative but punishing targeting of Russian. Key capabilities. Yes, it's also been, but Robert, it's also there's. Are we? Because I think uh, I, I shared with you a piece because there's a very interesting chap who not many of us know much about, and I certainly don't. Which is this guy, um, Sir Tony Radican, who is the uh, most senior British military officer. Yeah, uh, and he's been very close to the to the to the Ukrainians, and he's talking about you know quite serious penetration of the of the Russian lines as we know they want to go kind mm. of south. Uh, the, the Ukrainians want to go kind of southeast and cut off the Ukraine, but they don't have to go too far. You know, they don't have they they they, they have to be able to just jeopardize it, yeah. jeopardize that line. And also, I imagine Robert, and this is where you are so good at this about about the sort of politics of this or the diplomacy doing these rather they're spectaculars. You know, doing this mm. penetration to, of drones to Moscow, blowing up those ships, is a very good excite. You know, it's quite an exciting PR win. And I don't mean that just in a sort of crass way, no, no, I because know they've got to keep it, the West thinking that they're competent. 
I think it achieves both. It shows they can hit really important capabilities, but they're also, if you like, pulling the narrative away that they're losing the counteroffensive. And um, I do think some of the expectations around the counteroffensive were unrealistic. Um, But I do think uh, Ukraine shows no sign of letting up. And the other thing here to take, we don't have to necessarily rely on media commentators or dip scholars, who some of whom actually feel quite threatened by the prospect of Ukrainian success. I think we know who they are. Um, you know, the guys who've always argued land for peace. Well, if Ukraine win, uh, some of them are, you know, they'll have to see whether they've had it wrong all their careers. Mm. Yeah, no, but I, you sent me a very good piece on the new state. Well, an okay piece. And I, I do think we have to reflect that view because it's not an irrelevant view. And I, I get oh, no, slightly nervous with the. I mean, you're not. I'm not accusing you of being a booster, a boosterism person. But you know, this is that there is an art to what Putin is doing. It seems to me, which is forcing everybody to wait and and to break Western patience and to break Western endurance. But these spectaculars really help that. It seems to but me. But I think the respect for Putin's strategy. Has slowly waned. The the you know is is this conflict unfolds. We're seeing a whole series of red lines set out by Putin crossed, mm. mm-hmm. and uh, it won't be long before Ukrainians have F sixteens. It's probably October. Uh, we don't be we can't be precise on that. It also looks as if the Americans are finally lifting the lid on that long-range missile system. Yeah. Uh, I never remember the acronym. So ATACMS. Yeah. A-T-A-C-M-S, ATACMS. Yes, that's the one. And and these are formidable capabilities they've long needed. And the other thing is that uh, Mr. Putin is showing extreme signs of concern. Hmm. You mean by, 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 having, by having a meeting with Kim Jong-un at a Cosmodrome? Yeah. The other thing is, you see, what is really dangerous, and this is why the Zelensky is going for these high-profile targets, to be fair, we're hearing about the spectacular ones, but they are relentlessly going after less high-profile capabilities, and they're doing it all the time. And they're also, there seems to be a systematic, I know we've mentioned this before, but it's worth emphasizing, systematic destruction of capabilities like uh, conscription offices mm-hmm. and uh, chemical plants, warehouses, petroleum depots. All these things are getting attacked on a relentless scale every night. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure who's doing it, but it, it's happening. And uh, if we're you're trying to get an accurate gauge on how it's going, another thing to look at is the Russian media, mm-hmm. where there seems to be a state of demoralization now amongst Mr. Putin's pundits. He's people who've always been boosters for him. They seem to be flagging. And so, again, uh, I, I think the, the stakes are considerable. And uh, We'll probably have some twists and turns ahead, but I, I think those who said the counteroffensive have failed could yet be conf- uh, confounded. Robert, may I ask you a sort of a NATO-ish question here? We had, I think, ten days ago, a week ago, the certainly the debris, probably the actual wreckage of a a Russian drone landing in Romania on the other side of the mm. Danube from the from the Ukrainian grain ports. And overnight, we've had a remarkable piece from the BBC about the an attack that I think we we probably discussed. I think back in October, which mm. is where two Sukhoi Russian Russian Twice, fighter jets yeah. approached a British Airwax aircraft mm. that had come through. I just looked at its track today. It came through Varna more or less, which of course is where Dracula left to um, come to uh, come to Whitby. But that's a a tiny weeny digression, but it flew across and was then. But it t- turns out that the missile that supposedly dropped did drop, but that an earlier one was actually fired at the airwax plane. Christ, I missed. Christ knows how it actually got out of the way, but mm. so that would have been a very alarming incident. The British seem to have played it down, Peter. Uh, that, that's the interesting. Well, I suppose it's not. I think for several reasons they play it down. Certainly, they don't want NATO having to cite Article Five and getting you know NATO dragged in because that could undermine support for Ukraine. But the second thing is, of course, I think the British were probably reluctant to make a big deal about it because they probably didn't want to advertise just how much information they were getting. Yes, about, yeah, I wondered about uh, that too, yeah. Uh, apparently, they were in international airspace when they did this over the Black Sea. 
Yeah. And um, they were even able to translate the pilots' conversations simultaneously. I don't there must be some fantastic technology on board. Chat GPT. Yeah. But apparently the 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 two pilots had a huge row in the course yes. of the attempted assault on the <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah, while the first doing Mac, one told Can you imagine him, that while doing Mac one and having a row with the other Yes, guy? yeah, well <laughs> yeah. I think pilot number one warned number two not to fire a missile. He fired a missile and then he questioned his sanity. <laughs> and then he fired another missile, <laughs> which yeah. led to expletive deleted exchanges, which the British may have enjoyed once they calmed down. But it was a, mm. quite a near once, thing. You mean, yeah, you mean you, once they changed into your, your uniform, I suspect? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there were 30 people aboard that AWACS. Yep, allegedly, and yep. it was just yep. laden with equipment. But it's extraordinary the capabilities they have. Um, and I can see why the Russians would be nervous about those sort of capabilities hovering near the the battle zone because yes. uh, they they pick up a lot of stuff there in terms of communications. Well, I think just to mention that intelligence aspect, whether it's whether it's from that aircraft or it was also remarkable that you know the New York Times had a fantastic scoop. I think Monday last week, as we we discussed in the last pod, that the um, Kim Jong Un Putin meeting was going to happen. You know, mm. very well described, uh, and of course, right through this battle, this conflict from several months ahead, we've had the most extraordinary sort of weird transparency of um, the extent of intelligence that is is gained. What do you think is going on there? That I mean, we've talked about it before, but it's just- I think it's, they're just, this is a, a tactic. It has been a departure from the past, as you mentioned, and I think it's a tactic to keep Putin off balance. I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is authoritarian states like to present liberal democracies with fate accomplices. I'm sure Mr. Putin's dream scenario was that Kim would turn up unannounced in um, Vladivostok or wherever he is at the moment, and he was at the Space Centre, wasn't he, in the Far yeah. East, and he arrived there in his armoured train. I didn't realise that that was a cosmodrome that Putin had built in order to reduce their dependence on the one in Kazakhstan, the traditional one that we've, Baikonur, yeah. that we've all seen over the years. Let, let, let me just ask, ask you a question, because Bernard's desperate to move on to China, but of course. Um, e- Elon Musk, uh, mm. I, I wrote something in the spinoff this week. Uh, Ryan, Roland Ronan Farrow wrote a very good piece a couple of months, uh, a, month, oh, a couple of weeks ago in the New Yorker about the extent to which the US is dependent on Musk, Musk for so many things, and of course he just keeps stepping in to these various crises. I mean, he's mm. got Netanyahu coming to visit him and um, yes, yeah, on, on, on the west coast this week, yeah. so about to try and help him with the anti-Semitism problem on Twitter. Taiwan had a had a tantrum yesterday about his comments about um, Taiwan, China considering Taiwan part of its territory, and we've had this weird thing with him and Walter Eric Walter um, Isaacson, his new biographer, about mm. you know did you turn it off or did you just never have it turned on and did you agree to you know for the for the Starlink covering the covering Crimea? It's mm. a very interesting dependency on a single strategic man. It is, and in a, in a sense, I think. Some people in the democratic leadership may now be quite privately disappointed with Musk because I think, uh, you know, the, the idea of an entrepreneur, uh, Elon Musk has been a bit of a national hero. He's worked for Tesla and he seemed to be, you know, uh, far-sighted. But in fact, mm. um, he, he, he seems to have emerged as someone who um, has not conformed to the expectations that many people had of him. I haven't read the book yet, but I have read the previous book on by Ashley Ashley Vance about him. You know, Isaacson reveals that um, uh, Musk takes ketamine, that he's incredibly lonely, that he has spectacular mood swings, which I think we already knew. When you're thinking again about lecturing and and helping you know people through their PhDs and everything, yeah, can you recall a sort of time when you've had a kind of uh, great man of history or whatever? Sort of so strongly in the middle of all of something like this. I mean, you when you're thinking about it from an academic point of view, mm. do you say, "Oh, it's just the same as J.P. Morgan," or it's just the same as the Rothschilds? What, what, you know, this must be quite a quite a confronting thing for you when there's an unelected person who's deploying phenomenal power or discretion. It, it's not unusual in history. I mean, other unelected people have exerted tremendous power in the past. I mean, for a while, Joseph Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he became uh, U.S. ambassador, was he, he? He became very eminent and was really favoured initially by the Roosevelt administration until he became ambassador to Britain 
And yeah. then they began to go a bit sour quite rapidly. But, uh, it, you know, there are parallels over here with uh, Musk in a different way. I mean, Joseph uh, Kennedy, P. Kennedy, was a brilliant financier at his time. He got mm. through the Wall Street crash. And then he had various jobs in the early 30s where he was very competent on the financial front. And uh, he built up a, quite a big reputation. And that, that crumbled quite rapidly when he moved into the – he was very accomplished in the financial sphere. Mm. But when he got into the area that he really loved, finances ironically bored him. Uh, but when he got into the area that he was really interested in, I'm afraid it all went to custard, uh, at least yeah. for the, from the president's point of view. Uh, particularly Mr. Kennedy's infatuation with Hitler. Um, yeah, but he didn't do too badly with his sons, right? He, you know. Oh, no, not at all. And they also, I think, uh, as Jack Kennedy used to like to say, everyone has their fathers. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, hey? uh, which was a bit of a put down. But <laughs> Do you say everyone hates their fathers or has them? No, everyone has their fathers uh, in the sense uh, of, you know, sorry, well, just dad too will much be psychologically dad. which Yeah, you know, I mean, no, I don't <laughs> think, he, I think he loved his dad. I was there, every impression that he... He was very fond of his parents, but Elon did not. Now Bernard's just sitting. Look at him. Look at him. Yeah. He's like, he's I'm just, very he, keen to to drag this yeah, back go to, to China. China, China, because um, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed, but it is really important, uh, not it just is. in in the relationship with New Zealand, but also you know the the dance that's going on involving Russia and North Korea and America, and uh, the apparent turmoil inside the very senior leadership. In China, we've learned today mm. from the Financial Times that yeah. the Defence Minister, uh, whose name is Li Shang Fu, has not mm. been seen in public. One of these classic, um, he's been missing uh, in action, so to speak. And the US is saying that um, he may well have been stripped of his responsibilities and placed under investigation. What do you make of these sorts of things, which seem to crop up every now and again out of China? He seems to be following the fate of the former foreign minister, doesn't he, where he may have been implementing the boss's instructions just a little bit too accurately and uh, with things not working so well on the domestic and international front, uh, maybe Ms. Xi Jinping. Um, I, I'm wondering if Xi Jinping is feeling a bit of heat and he needs to have a reshuffle to take the pressure off himself. That is to say, all these people have been put in place, presumably with his approval, and um, things are not going well, as you've alluded to, Bernard, on the economic front. And uh, they're not going particularly well on the strategic front either, actually, because Mr. Xi put quite a lot of faith in uh, in at least being supportive of Mr. Putin's invasion in a sort of uh, semi-detached way. And the other thing is, we this is the thing about reading the tea leaves in an authoritarian state. We don't know how much pressure and criticism he's getting behind closed doors. Mm. Mm. And he may feel very much on the defensive. That Kim Jong-un meeting must be quite alarming in a kind of weird way to to, um, to Xi. Well, I don't think it is because I think Xi knows that Russia's got a, a basket economy. And uh, it shouldn't have, of course, because it's a country of wonderful resources. But at the moment... Uh, the Russian economy is hugely underperforming, and of course, it's not helped by the demands of war, 500 mm. million a day or whatever it is. It's costing the Russian economy. And so since North Korea is about 95% dependent on the Chinese, I don't think the well, Chinese that's what I mean. see- that's, that's what I mean. That this, this seems, I mean, they've kept him v vaguely sane and sort of in a, in a large metal box with a, you know, with a piece of garlic on top. And here he takes his he takes his armored train with the pink chairs up up to Vladivostok. That, that's that's, that's be not our character, is it? it? I mean, he's often frustrated mm. the Chinese by these mm. some of mm. these nuclear tests. When the Americans yeah. were working more cooperatively before the Trump era, they were. Yeah. I'm not saying they always saw eye to eye. There was always a doubt in Washington that China was really trying to strain, but they, at least they were publicly upbraiding uh, and regretting these nuclear tests. And he didn't hesitate to do them. The fact that. Um, three quarters of North Koreans don't have any electricity, mm, and there yeah. are genuine food problems. They'd only waste it. Oh, Peter! It doesn't seem to worry the dictator. But um, Robert, I, I guess I'm thinking about Stalin and Mao. You know, I often think about Stalin. He's one of my favourite people in a sense. But <laughs> you know, be, being like you, an incredible student of history, you know, that doesn't end well when you've got when you've when you've had Russia and China and yes Soviet Union and CCP at Mao and Stalin kind of working together and then clashing over North Korea is a bad scene 
I don't know. I, I, I feel that the Chinese don't really regard Putin's Russia as a true partner. I think there's been a lot of theatrics involved. Uh, they, they do have a common interest in trying to counter US power. But, it, you know, it was we discussed previously, they've been bringing these maps out in which they're reclaiming part of Russia and India. And uh, it seems to me that China's ambitions are not wedded to the situation in Russia. Um, and it, it's interesting that China has really taken advantage of mm. uh, Russia's isolation following its invasion of Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I always have the sense of the Chinese that they were quite frustrated with Kim Jong-un, but thought any alternative would be worse, mm. uh, particularly a, a Western-supported alternative. And there is an element of opportunism here in that um, North Korea sending weapons to Russia is going to provide the weapons to Russia and not put um, China under pressure to provide the weapons to Russia. So mm. there's a there's an element of, you know, um, uh, it saves us from <laughs> having to send, send the shells over. Um, Robert, thank you very much for um, coming on to the show again. It's wonderful to have you. And uh, I wanted to welcome onto the show for the first time Rebecca Stevenson from interest.co.nz. And hopefully not the last. Yeah, yeah, no, we're very, very lucky to have Rebecca on. Rebecca, uh, you've written a bunch of stories in recent weeks about the real problem uh, with uh, scams and frauds being perpetrated on the customers of New Zealand's banks, particularly the big four. Um, could you tell us about uh, what you've reported earlier in the week, particularly around the issue of hush payments? Yeah, that's right. So I became aware that there were some banks making settlements to New Zealanders who had made what are called authorised payments um, to scammers. So that's where you haven't been hacked where you've actually sort of like the Waka Kotahi scam mm -hmm. gets into link and you click on it and you give their details and next thing you know, your accounts are drained. So up until this point, we didn't realise that the banks were actually paying back any of these customers any money at all. Um, mm. As it stands, the New Zealand Banking Code of Practice says that banks will pay back customers who inadvertently or unwittingly um, fall foul of these scammers. But we do know now um, that the banks are actually paying back some people who are falling victim to authorised payment scams. But what they've been doing is offering partial settlements, often half or, or so. Um, but in the, in the other hand, they are also asking people to sign non-disclosure agreements or confidentiality clauses, uh, meaning that they can't discuss that they've had any money back. Uh, now, there's an mm. obvious reason that the banks would do that. They don't want to admit liability for these authorised payment scams. They've or they don't want everybody jumping in. Exactly. They don't want everybody to want to settle too. So it definitely suits them to try and keep that under wraps. Um, it's obviously great for those who have actually got some of their money back. But on the other hand, you know, you do have a situation where some people might not know and be disadvantaged. And um, it obviously has suited the banks, I think, you know, to make these partial payments because they've been firm about no liability. Yeah, I was curious to see how far behind our banks are, uh, best behind best practice on dealing with the scammers and the fraudsters. Overseas, there's been much more aggressive uh, use of uh, checking of names and of accounts and of uh, cleaning out the scammers who often end up with actual bank accounts, you know, in mm. the same sorts of banks. Um, what's been the response of the banks so far in, in all of this, which uh, on the face of it looks um, tardy? Yeah, they really have been dragging their heels. You know, when we look at those countries that we like to compare ourselves with, particularly Australia and with these kinds of frauds, the United Kingdom, we do seem quite far behind. Mm -hmm. You know, the United Kingdom introduced name and account number checking or confirmation of payee in 2020. Uh, now, obviously, today, the New Zealand Banking Association has said it will instigate that and make it happen here in New Zealand. Um, they've been throwing up lots of reasons as to why it can't happen here and also been making quite a few excuses too, saying that actually it hasn't stopped scams in the UK. Well, it's not going to stop scams. They always keep iterating and changing what they're doing. But what critics have been saying is that because New Zealand hasn't plugged this hole, our system has been seen as a soft touch 
and an easy target for scammers. And that's why we've been seeing these really big haul scams, hundreds of thousands of dollars taken um, from New Zealanders as a result. And Rebecca, may I ask, we, we've got you know a, a large number of the of the New Zealand or a large portion of the New Zealand banking system is run by Australian banks. Yeah, what's that's the, right. What's the what's the regime in Australia? I, I know what the you know in the UK you get a hundred percent back. It's required, and it really does put. I I've, I bank in the UK still too, and the the sometimes I find it irritating. But the second factor, uh, multi factor authentication and so on that you have to do in the UK is is you know is quite a good protection when you're transferring money. Just what what what's the liability for the banks in Australia? Um, they still haven't brought in uh, industry-wide name and account number checking. There are some moves that have been made. Uh, National Australia Bank has introduced some of its own account checking systems, but they haven't had an industry-wide system. What the New Zealand Banking Association has said today is that it will do an industry-wide push. Now, of course, New Zealand's payment system is run by Payments NZ, which is owned by the banks. Yeah, so they are well-placed to bring it in here in New Zealand, I think. It will obviously cost money and there will be technical changes that need and to And, Rebecca, do, do, Australian, do, do Australian banks in Australia have to pay back um, people who get scammed? There's no um, mandatory uh, no, So it's the same sort yet. of situation as here. Yeah, that's right. The UK has really gone one step further. You know, As of next year, they will have to pay back everybody. And it basically is saying, you know, that will force you to make your systems as secure as possible because you're going to be financially on the hook for anyone who yeah. gets scammed. May, may I ask you one? Because I think when you know, there's a lot of people talking about this on our on our uh, chat on on YouTube, and you know, very often things purport to be um, from a legitimate source. The Waka Katahi one looked extremely legitimate. I'm told. Often you can you have to go dig back through the URLs of the emails that they're sending them from. To realise it's a sort of bogus thing about Amazon or thing about Apple or something, but but sometimes, like I, I had one the other day purporting to be from Apple, and it incorporated a message to an Apple no reply address as well, which doubled that sensor that it might actually be from Apple. It was a very weird. I mean, these people are very clever. What do you recommend to the to the to the many many listeners of listeners of Bernard and my podcast or Bernard's podcast really that I hitch a ride on? Don't click on any links that anyone sends you via text or even via email. You know, I would ring your bank directly, ring the source themselves and check. You know, don't ever rely on a number that's sent to you even. Um, you know, even if your bank says to you, hey, ring this number, this, this number, I think you look up the number individually yourself, check it, verify it, and then ring. Don't take anything that gets sent to you as at face value. Yeah, and has this overtaken Rebecca? Sorry, you're so good at this at interest, though. Just forgive me, Bernard. I will shut up in a second. But the well, you'll be lucky. But the um, <laughs> the you know we've got fishing has been a phenomenon, but we've also seen various weird investment scams. You know, which the Herald is particularly good on picking up of mm. somebody who said, "I've just lost my last two hundred thousand dollars in this," and you just think, "Oh my God, how did that happen?" Yeah. Do you want to comment on that as well on the on the alternative methods? Yeah. Those scams are really well done. That Citibank scam in particular was incredibly well done. You know, the man that rings you has a nice soft British accent. He's incredibly well spoken. He's very plausible. They know a lot about you. They've researched you. Um, you know, they have already know that you're interested in investing. Um, they have mocked up websites. They have mocked up an individual investment account that has your details on it. It looks like it's an investment portal that has your money in it. You know, this is their proper day job and they're incredibly good at it. Um, with that Citibank term deposit scam, this is where the critics are saying that name and account number checking in particular could have made a difference because that money actually went to accounts in New Zealand, actually ASB oh, mule That's accounts. interesting. So if people Blimey. had been able to see that it was actually paying to an ASB account and not a US Citibank account for a term deposit. It looks even more, but, yeah. It, it hopefully would have perhaps raised some flags. And the scale of um, what's going on here is pretty stunning. There's been a poll come out uh, this week from, or last week from Horizon Research, a poll of a thousand adults, which showed that 13% 
said that uh, someone had used their card for fraud. So there's there's the sort of uh, garden variety, someone got hold of your credit card number and started using it. 10% had found uh, that they'd experienced fraud through a bank account and 7% said they were victims of cybercrime. So the numbers here are, re- are really starting to get up. Half a million Kiwis have been, de- have been uh, uh, fraud has been committed on them via, via a bank. And the numbers um, seem to be, you know, heading into the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's absolutely extraordinary. You know, the banking ombudsman told Parliament last year that she estimated losses were about $200 million, but that is mm-hmm. very conservative. I would say it's way in excess of that. Um, so if we, have a, if, we have a, if we have a supermarkets ombudsman and we have a banking ombudsman, what's happening? What's, well, what's being done to fix this? Criticism is that the banking ombudsman scheme is beholden to the banks, that they mm. run the banking ombudsman scheme through the code of practice. They're the ones that decide that they are only reimbursing, for example, those uh, hacked payments rather than the authorised payments. Part of the Banking Association announcement today is that they say they're going to do something <laughs> to the banking ombudsman scheme. Um, well, if they own that up. payment network, Aren't we in a really good position to, to to actually do it very, very well in New Zealand, potentially? I think so. And I think now we really need to keep the pressure on that they do introduce this in a timely fashion. Um, that's what Consumer NZ's John Duffy has said. He's worried about them dragging the chain now. He says, you know, they have own payment NZ. There's no reason then if they say they want it, they need to make steps and actually bring it in now quickly because they've dragged their heels for far too long. And you do wonder, there's been criticism from the Reserve Bank to the banks about their lack of investment over the years in their tech systems. And um, you have to wonder if just the sheer uh, scale of the cost of having to reinvest in, in making their systems cleaner is is an issue here. Re- Rebecca, wonderful to see you. Thank you very much for coming oh, Rebecca, on to the I show. Just, let me, we, we do a skateboarding dog, but let me just tell you a little story about my only currently touch wood again experience of being scammed or attempted scammed was in Marlborough High Street in London, where there was this uh, uh, spate of, um, and I'm going to, um, of what were often Romanian um, scammers who would insert a little strip of magnetic plastic into an ATM with a little transmitter on it and stand nearby. And when you put your card in, the Yikes. little, it, and, I, and it had to me, and the guy, and I, <laughs> and I pulled out one of these things which was about a sort of like pulling out from an anaconda or a or a or a hydatids worm, if you remember what those were, out of the ATM, and the guy behind. And then I started yelling in Romanian at the guy and chasing him up the street. So at least I had the satisfaction of seeing who was trying to scam me and holding this enormous piece of presumably moderately expensive plastic that he was using to transmit, you know, my credit card details to his app. But anyway. Mm. I, I, I don't want to be like Todd, what's his name, from, from NBR and do a citizen's arrest on somebody, <laughs> but I would have. I think they're just, they've kind of moved on from that. You know, now it yeah. is very systemic. It's very process. It's, it's, it's really sca- savvy scamming and with these investment scams. So it, it's not that kind of piece of plastic on the machine that we need to worry about now. It's that text. It's that investment offer. And much of it is state-sponsored. I mean, this is one of the big concerns here is that a lot of this is coming from North Korea and it's coming from Russia and it's coming from mm-hmm. from China using the scale that you can uh, that you can create to weaponize these these scams. So you can do it at enormous scale, and all you need is you know half a percent to respond, and you're in. And the cost of it's much lower. Yeah. Rebecca, yeah. thank you so much. Wonderful to have you on. And um, we'd, lo- we'd love to um, have you on again at, at some point. Uh, that's, great. that's great. And say hello to all my, my friends and former colleagues at, at Interest. It's lovely to see the great work they're doing. If you like digression, you're in the right place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, skateboarding dog, Peter. Well, there's a couple of things. So the Ig Nobel Awards came out today, and the one I particularly like from, and the Ig Nobel Awards are those ones that come out every year, just ahead of the actual Nobel Prize, and they're for sort of weird science. Science, and one of the best ones today is a study of why scientists lick rocks, yes. because apparently <laughs> there's a there's a historic precedent for scientists licking rocks, and 
you know, like a good wine, you can tell its minerality and it's, you know, you can say, oh, it's a Chateau Moussigny 54, uh, or it's, you know, and it's a nice peaty little rock or it's got gold in it. But apparently the main reason they lick rocks now is because it creates a little sheen on them, which makes the properties of it more evident. But the great thing ah. is somebody's done a study about that. Ah, so that's good my on, little skateboarding good, dog. Good, good science is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Um, that's great. Uh, and and no doubt the rocks. There, there might be some salt in there. I'm sure at times yeah, people absolutely. used to do absolutely. that. Well, let's try it tonight. We can. Yeah, I think if we start licking the pavement in um, in yeah, Jervois nah. Road, we might. Nah. You know, there's too, too many too many little dogs. Other things. Too many little yep, dogs. Yep. 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 Wonderful to see you again, Peter. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to everyone for joining us on Mahoon. It's been a heck of a week. I'm sorry if I wasted anybody's time, Wendy. <laughs> we, we will see you all next week. Have a great weekend, everyone. If Kaki you're lucky. Cheers. Bye. bye. Thank you. Bye.